Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Mmm, it's a warm response. How's everybody doing? All right. Super good. Let's do this. Let's begin with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll get into it. Let me pray. Uh, gracious Father, we uh, bless your name for, uh, for being our God, for allowing us to be a part of your people that you have uh, rescued and redeemed us by the blood of your Son and through the power of your Spirit. Uh, you have illuminated the truth of your word to us that we might know who Christ is and what he's done. And because of his life and death and resurrection, we can have life. We can be made uh, perfect and uh, righteous before you. And so we thank you for that. We thank you that that's true. And as we uh, continue to think this morning and talk this morning about who you are uh, and how you are and who you are, uh, Lord, we ask for you to be near to us, Lord, that you will sharpen our minds, strengthen uh, our faith this morning, and that we might find joy in our salvation as we think about you. And so we bless your name for loving us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here in this place this morning. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. All right, super good. So my name is Carl. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. If you have not met me yet, I would love to make that happen. Just, uh, just grab me in the hallway afterward, introduce yourself. Uh, most of the faces in here I recognize, which is exciting and encouraging. Uh, but if I, if I have not had the chance to get to know you, I'd love to. Love that opportunity. Um, so uh, this is uh, a venue in which uh, I have a smaller amount of experience in terms of uh, teaching in this kind of a, a setting. Um, and so I thought it'd be helpful to make an analogy so you know what to expect, what you know what you're in for. So if we think about uh, Jeff and Zach, who primarily are in here doing the teaching, and if we were to think about those guys and me uh, in terms of uh, like um, weaponry, okay, right? And you would say, uh, Jeff Ashley is like a sniper rifle, very calm and collected, considerate, thoughtful, takes one shot, gets what needs to get done, done, it's very accurate. Then you got Zach Lee, who's like a fully automatic machine gun. He's just blasting you with tons of stuff. He's on target, but man, there's so much stuff coming at you. Uh, and then there's me, and I'm kind of more like a, like a shotgun. There's stuff just kind of going everywhere, and some of it's on target, but man, what's going on? He's just... What did he say? So there's, I just want you to set you up, right, for what you, what's happening this morning. Uh, Tim, Tim is our other minister on staff. He, he'd be more like a, I don't know, like a hand grenade. Uh, so lots, lots and lots of noise, not 100% sure what happened, uh, but, but stuff definitely got taken care of. So, um, so that's what we're doing this morning. We're coming at this like a shotgun this morning, so, so bear with me. Uh, so what we've been doing is we've been talking about um, the attributes of God. So we've been working through the doctrine of God and we now we're kind of thinking through the, his attributes. What is he like? We're trying to craft language that helps us think about what is God like? And so for the last two weeks, we've been talking about his incommunicable attributes. And these are the attributes that we said are, are, in, are attributes that we aren't like him in these ways. So we think about things like omniscience, which is God's all-knowingness. He knows everything. Well, we don't. We don't know everything. We don't share that attribute with him. His omnipresence. He is everywhere. He's spirit. He's not bound by time and space like us. And so we don't share that attribute with him. Today and next week, uh, we're going to be talking about his communicable attributes, which are attributes that he does share with us, ways in which we are more like him. 
Um, but a few things, a kind of few ground rules for us to remember. We've been through some of these before already, but it bears repeating. Uh, that first of all, the idea of these categories of communicable and incommunicable are kind of arbitrary. They aren't uh, something that is lined out in Scripture. The Scriptures don't say, here's the ways that God's like you, and here's the ways God is not like you, specifically in the ways that we're doing. But it is helpful for us to create these categories and to talk in these terms so that we can think about who God is. Because what we're doing is we're taking a finite, human, man-based language and we're trying to use that to describe God, which is inadequate. Uh, and so we're just doing our best. And so when we come up with these categories, they are a little bit arbitrary. Uh, and one of the things that Jeff mentioned last week, which I think is helpful, is for us to, when we think about these attributes, especially the ones we're talking about today and next week, which are these communicable attributes, that it's helpful for us to take the word holy and put it in front of that attribute when we talk about it in terms of God. So when we talk about wisdom, that God has a holy wisdom. It is perfect. It is ultimate. It is to the utmost. His wisdom, while it is something indeed that he shares with us, is completely and totally different. It's on a completely different scale than us. And so there is a little bit of bleed over, a crossover between the ideas of incommunicable and communicable. You can make a case for almost every communicable attribute to be incommunicable in that it's nothing like God. It looks a little bit like it. It feels a little bit like it, which is why we would call it communicable. But at the end of the day, these are kind of arbitrary categories that we've created so that the English language can encapsulate what we're wanting to talk about when we think about God. Uh, one of the things that Zach mentioned to me, which I thought was really helpful for me, and so I'll mention it to you, so these are Zach's words, is that God is not a rainbow. And he said that, and he waited for me to kind of sort that out, which took me a while because I'm shotgun style. And he, uh, what he says, the, the idea here is that it's not that God is a bunch of different things smooshed together. He's not an amalgamation of all these things. God is not one day wrathful, and then tomorrow he walks in wisdom, but he puts his wrath away. But rather, all of these things, all of these attributes that we talk about God, he is to the utmost all the time. God is always ultimately and completely and perfectly and wholly wise. He is always completely and totally and wholly wrathful against sin. Always. And so this idea is not that God is made up of these different parts that we are able to talk about and put together, but rather God is made out of God. He's made of God things, God stuff. And we are trying to describe who that God is and how he is. So this morning we're going to talk about eight different communicable attributes. We're going to talk through wisdom, truthfulness, mercy, grace, patience, justice, jealousy, and wrath. And we're going to take these one at a time, and that's a lot of things. And so we're going to kind of move quickly. There's tons more to say on these things than I will say, uh, but I want to get, kind of wet our whistle in terms of thinking about these ideas. Uh, and the reason we've chosen these eight is not because these are the only eight that we need to talk about. We have another week to teach on this. And nor is what we're going to teach this week and next week the totality of attributes that we could talk about. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of other attributes of God that we could talk about that would be true, that would be helpful. But we've chosen these because they tend to be the ones that get talked most about in Scripture. They're the ones that are most helpful for us to kind of formulate clear thoughts about who God is. And so we're going to talk about some specific ones, but just be aware, it's not an exhaustive list. Okay? So let's jump in. Let's talk about wisdom. So as we do each one of these, we're going to talk a little bit about what we think wisdom is, what we tend to associate with these words. Then we're going to talk about what it really means in terms of God. And then we're going to talk about how that attribute is somehow communicable to us. 
okay? So with wisdom, what do we say wisdom is? How does our culture define it? How do we think about this word? Oftentimes, we'll think of wisdom as uh, something we would apply to a person who might be thought of uh, insightful or clever or smart or sometimes old, right? Sometimes we'll think of people with gray hair as automatically having wisdom. Um, The idea here is that wisdom is being armed with right information, correct knowledge, that then leads one to be able to make good judgments about the right and best outcome of a thing or a situation. But not only that right and best outcome, but also the right and best means by which to get to that outcome. Wisdom is knowledge about a thing that allows one to get to the right and best solution or outcome, and also to take the right and best means to get there. And so, an example that I give you is, uh, most of us would know that if you're cooking a casserole at the house, and you got that thing in the oven, and you got the timer set, and you're hanging out, and the timer goes off, and you open the oven, you're not gonna just reach in there and grab the dish and pull it out with your bare hand, because you know that's not gonna go well. It's gonna burn your hand. Most of us would say, that's, that's foolish. Wisdom would say, don't do that. I am gonna do the smart and wise thing, which is open this drawer next to the oven, take out an oven mitt, and put it on my hand, and grab the casserole dish, because I walk in wisdom, and I set it on the counter. Some others of us might have had a different experience, which says, I had an oven mitt in this drawer for 10 years, and then one day, I put it on, and it's made out of cotton, and somebody said something to me, and I said, huh? And I reached in, and I touched the burner with the tip of my glove, and it burst into flames. So I'm taking this flaming glove off my hand, and I immediately got on Amazon, and I bought one of these fancy plastic gloves that are heat re- resistant and all these things, and now that's what I use. So now I walk in greater wisdom than all you cotton guys. I take that, I'm not getting burned again. And I set it down. So this idea is not just that I'm able to get to the outcome, which is I want the casserole out of the oven, not that I only want to not get burned, but what is the best way, the best and right way to get to that outcome? So wisdom is a knowledge that allows uh, good judgments to be made. Now, the way that we gain wisdom uh, can really kind of be thought of in two categories. One is good and right and best, and another is potentially helpful and potentially unhelpful. So let's talk about the good one first, which is the Word of God. The Word of God is the source of all wisdom for us. God has given us all that he wants us to know about everything he wants us to know about in his Word. So every bit of wisdom that he desires us to have, that he expects us to know, is in his Word. The scriptures are sufficient. However, there's another place where we can indeed gain some modicum of wisdom, which is through experience. But whereas the first is completely trustworthy and will completely not fail us, the scriptures, experience can absolutely fail us. Experiential wisdom through just life lived can indeed be correct and right and can also be foolish and wrong. And I'll give you an example. When our son, Taylor, who is now almost 16, was a toddler, like one, two years old. So he's doing the high chair thing at mealtime. Our little family went to have dinner at a Mexican food place. My wife and I are sitting across from one another with him sitting in the high chair kind of in between us. So we have double sets of hands to deal with all of his stuff, right? So when he wants to pick up a spoon and bang it on the table, there's multiple hands that can stop that. When he wants to throw stuff, there's multiple, you got to kind of team up and get them in between you. So we're across the table from one another, and Carol and I decide that we want to share fajitas. So we order fajitas. And most of us know, if you've been to a Mexican place, if you get fajitas, it comes out on this sizzling skillet, steamed, 
going everywhere. This is big production. Everybody's like, man, those smell great. Who's with those? And they come over to your table, and they're like, did you order the fajitas, sir? And you're like, yes, I did. And they set them down. Now, any waiter that's worth their salt is going to know that this blazing hot skillet of meat should not be placed in front of a toddler. But not this one. So all of the space between Carol and I on the table is occupied by chips and salsa and things like that. And instead of moving that stuff, he just sets it down in front of our toddler. And I see this happening, right? And I'm already thinking to myself, hmm, I don't think that's going to go well. Because I'm already trying to think of a solution to this issue without being super rude to the waiter. And I also see my son, who has noticed this sizzling plate coming out of the kitchen. And this particular restaurant uh, would garnish their fajitas uh, with a cherry tomato. I do not know why, but that's what they did. So you had the onions and the peppers and the meat and a cherry tomato. Now, a cherry tomato is round and red and looks like a ball. And Taylor said, I want that ball. <laughs> right? I didn't know that, but that's what he's thinking. So he sees, this, he sees this red cherry tomato on the skillet. And he sees it and he's just laser focused. And here comes the waiter setting it down in front of me. And he goes, that's right, that's for me. And he reaches out to get it, and I see him reaching while the waiter's putting it down. And I reach, and I grab his little wrist, and I pull it back. But only a split second after, he actually touched the skillet. The good news is we did not have to go to the hospital. He was fine. It, was, it hurt. He cried, partially because he was burned, partially because his dad just grabbed his arm really, really uh, violently out of nowhere. Uh, but he was fine. Uh, and we got everything situated, we had dinner. Now, what we thought he learned was, don't touch the sizzling hot skillet when it comes out of the kitchen. That steam means hot, don't touch, bad, bad. What he learned is, cherry tomatoes are hot and they will burn you. And so for a couple of years, if he saw a cherry tomato, he would say, hot. And we're like, it's not hot, buddy. And we thought, why does he think it's hot? Because it's red? That's weird. I don't understand that. And then one day we put it together. Man, you remember when he burned his fingers? It was that cherry tomato. We figured it out. So his experience in that moment taught him something that was false. He had a wisdom that he gained from that experience that was false. He learned something that was not true, but he believed it to be true because of his experience. And so when we want to gain wisdom, we have to trust in the places we can trust, and we have to be wary and cautious in the places we need to be wary and cautious. Our experiences will not be true always. Our feelings will not be true always. What we think about something will not always be true. God's word is always true, and it can be trusted. So, where else do we see wisdom? Uh, like I said a moment ago, we often see uh, or think of people that are wise as being old people. So if somebody has gray hair, we think that they're obviously wise, right? Right? Uh, that's not always true. Now, the scriptures do declare in Job, uh, in Job 12, says this, wisdom is with the aged and understanding and length of days. So there's an element of truth. There's a sense in which that's true, that as you grow older, you do have more experience and therefore you have more wisdom. But as we said a moment ago, some of that wisdom might be false. Some of that wisdom might not line up with the word of God. So when we think about wisdom and we think about how it's rooted in knowledge, right knowledge, correct knowledge, best knowledge, then God has all the knowledge. God has all of it. God knows everything that ever was and ever will be, and therefore all of his judgments are good. All of his decisions are what's best. So God is infinitely wise. He has wisdom to the utmost degree. He is infinitely wise. So this attribute, wisdom, is communicable to us 
in that we can possess some amount of wisdom and we can occasionally exercise good judgments, but because of our sin nature, that's not always going to be the case. We're not always going to walk in true wisdom because we're going to be deceived by some of our worldly experiences. If you take Solomon, the man who the Bible declares is the man, the man that God gave the most wisdom to ever, this man had multiple wives, which is contrary to the word of God. This man at one point worshiped idols, which is contrary to the word of God. So no amount of wisdom is ever going to attain to the level of what God is. We can never share this attribute with him fully, as with all of these attributes. God's attributes, even the ones that we share, are on a different scale. They're on a different level. But when we talk about them being communicable, it's that we can share in some piece of it, some element of it, some kind of hint of it. So on your handouts, I've got a few verses for each of these attributes. I just want to read through the ones that we got here on wisdom really quickly. Um, so uh, before we get to there, the one thing I want to mention is that Psalms and Proverbs again and again and again declare that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is an idea that comes up a great deal. Uh, fearing the Lord is this idea of knowing who he is, honoring the fact that he is sovereign, and submitting your life to him. This is fearing him. Fearing is not a cowering kind of fear, but is this idea, I understand who God is, and I submit myself to him. I walk in fear of him in the same way that a child submits themselves to their, their parents because they recognize that's the authority. I want to submit myself to them. I fear my parents, but it's not a cowering kind of fear. And this is the beginning of wisdom, which means that we cannot have that kind of fear without an adequate and accurate knowledge of who God is, which again is found in his word. So Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 says, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. James chapter 1 verse 5 says, if, you lack, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And this speaks to this idea of the worldly wisdom idea, right? There are ways that will seem right to us because of our experience, because of our thoughts, because of our feelings. But the scriptures declare there is a way that seems right to you, but in the end leads to death. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So wisdom comes from God. Okay, number two, truthfulness. Now, we associate the idea of truthfulness generally with speech, right? If I tell a lie or I tell the truth, right? Do I say things that are true or do I say things that are false? And the idea here is that uh, God only speaks truth. He can only speak truth because he is himself the standard of truth. If we want to know whether or not something God said is true, we have to measure it against the standard. What's the standard? God himself. Whatever he says is true, and it is true because he said it, because he's the standard. We, there is no external standard for which we can appeal to truth but God. So God himself is true. He only speaks what's true. Now, we can speak truth, especially if we speak his words. If we speak the words of God, if we are, if we are using scripture as what we're saying, then we're using his words, which are true and perfect and right. But what we can do is we can take truth and bend it, we can take it and manipulate it, we can try to create uh, a gray area in between truth and falsehood, which isn't a reality, but we try to create it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we are about to move to McKinney, which is sweet. 
My family's moving here in like a month. And so what we're doing right now is packing and trying to decide which things are we keeping, which things are we getting rid of, and we're getting rid of some stuff. And some of the stuff I'm selling online, right? And I'm selling a thing, and somebody emails and says, hey, I like your thing. How much for your thing? And I say, this much for the thing. And they say, nothing. They just disappear. And I think to myself, I really want to sell that thing. Man, I know what I'll do. I email them, and I say, hey, I just want to double check, see if you're still interested in the thing, uh, because uh, you're first in line. And I just want to make sure, you know, you know, if you want it. Now, what I've done is I've created this weird gray area because there is no line. There's no one else that's contacted me and said they want the thing. But I'm pretending like there is, and I'm allowing them to believe that there is. And at first I was like, man, how clever of me. How super clever for me to not lie and yet manipulate this person into responding and hopefully buying the thing. Now, the reality is that there's truth and there's falsehood. And for me to state mostly what's true but have a little bit of falsehood is false. If I were to give you a multiple uh, clause statement and one of the clauses is false, then the whole thing is false. If I were to say to you uh, that a couple months ago I got on a plane wearing jeans and a t-shirt and I was super sleepy and I sat in a really cramped seat for hours and hours and flew to Romania and it was a, a little bit traumatic for me because I was afraid of being over the ocean. Uh, and I did all of this while sitting next to my wife, then that would be a false statement. Because all of those things are true, except I was not sitting next to my wife. I was sitting next to my son. My wife didn't go on the trip. My son did. And so if I try to take truth and twist it and add a little bit of deception in there, it isn't gray, it's false. And so this idea is that God only speaks truth. We try to speak truth, but we oftentimes fail. And we oftentimes will try to use the truth to our own advantage. And we'll try to twist things and make this gray area where we don't feel quite so convicted, and yet we're manipulating someone or being deceitful. For the record, I have repented. Okay. Um, so this attribute of truth for God begins with his very existence, the very existence of God is referred to a bazillion times in the scriptures as him being the one true God. He is true. He is the only true God. There was one true God and there are many false gods. And so the idea here is that truth is in essence who God is. So he only speaks truth because he is truth. And so this, uh, this attribute is communicable to us because we can speak truth but not fully, not completely, not consistently like him. We are not perfectly like God. So when we repeat what God has said, when we speak the words of Scripture, we're the closest to this in, in, in walking in truth correctly because God's words are perfectly truthful. And to go even further, God's Scriptures declare that he loves truth and hates lies. So it's more than just, I need to say things that are true. I need to be really careful about what I say. I need to love the truth, and I need to hate the lie because that's what God does. He loves truth and he hates lies. And so I should love truth and hate lies. It's not enough for us to just simply tell the truth and not lie, but we should hate them. We should hate lies and we should love truth. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we get to the wrath of God in a little bit. So a few scriptures on this. John three thirty three: Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Hebrews 6, verses 17 and 18 
So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So the scriptures here say God cannot lie. Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? John 7, 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. John 17, verse three says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Number three, mercy. Now these next three that we're gonna do, mercy, grace, and patience, are connected a little bit, okay? They're connected to another attribute of God, which is his goodness. Now, our own Tim Hollis is gonna be up here next week to teach on more communicable attributes, and one of the ones he's gonna be talking about is goodness, so I'm not gonna steal his thunder, but I'm gonna tell this very quickly, make these connections for you, because I think it's valuable that mercy, grace, and patience are an outworking of God's goodness. And so mercy is God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. God's grace is his goodness to those who only deserve punishment. And then God's patience is his goodness in withholding punishment toward those who sin over time. Now, when I think of the word mercy, which is the one we're talking about right now, I always think of a movie called The Karate Kid, has anyone seen The Karate Kid? Okay, that's pretty good. Here's the deal, Parkway. I need you to see this movie. So your assignment for next week is to have seen Karate Kid because it is fantastic, not because it's actually a good movie, just because I love it, okay? It's actually kind of a mediocre movie, but I'm not gonna acknowledge that with my heart. I'm only gonna say it with my lips. Uh, I love this movie. So this movie uh, kind of centers on this kid. He's scrawny, he gets beat up a lot, he moved to the new town. He's getting beat up by a group of kids that have been taking karate lessons for years. Uh, and their teacher is kind of this bad guy who's giving them bad thoughts about how to treat people. And one of the things he says when he's training them is, uh, mercy is for the weak. We will not show mercy here. Uh, and so that, the idea of mercy always jumps to my head. Now, what does that have to do with teaching mercy? And nothing. It has nothing to do with that except uh, for me to say that God is not like this terrible karate teacher. Okay? He is a merciful God. I just love that movie and thought I would mention it. <laughs> so, this idea is uh, that God's goodness is being poured out on those who are in misery and distress. And this attribute is communicable to us because we can indeed show mercy to one another in times of distress and misery. The easiest example of this that I could point to is here recently is what's been going on in Houston. Right, this humongous hurricane comes through, does tons of damage, tons of flooding. People are stranded. People are homeless. People are, uh, are in their cars and can't get out. There's all this terrible stuff happening. And what we think happens is that people sit and watch it on TV and be like, man, I hope that gets better. But what really happened is that thousands of people went to Walmart and Sam's and loaded up water and supplies, filled their trucks up hitched up their boats if they have them, drove down there, rescued people from their cars, rescued people from their houses, gave people supplies, helped them build shelters. This was happening because people were being merciful to one another. They were showing mercy. They saw another human being 
bearing the image of God in, in distress, and they went to help. So we can share in this to some degree. God's goodness toward people who are in, in distress is infinitely greater than ours. The scriptures say that he is near to the brokenhearted, that he comforts the afflicted. His comfort, his nearness is way better than a truck full of stuff in a boat. It always will be. So God's ability to be merciful is infinitely greater than ours, but we still can share in this a little bit with him. And so like all the other attributes, his mercy is wholly unlike ours. And holy, I think it's important to do this real quick because we do this a lot up here. There's two words that sound the same, holy and holy. Holy with a W-H means completely, right? Holy without the W and with the one less L means holy, means perfect, right? And so his attributes are holy, W-H, unlike ours, completely unlike ours, and yet we still have a connection. We still have this image. We still have this taste of what his attributes are like. So a few verses on mercy. 2 Samuel 24, 14 says, Then David said to God, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of a man. Of man. <clears throat> so David is acknowledging here, he recognizes the mercy of God is far greater than any mercy that he may or may not receive from a man. 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9 says, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Psalm eighty-six, fifteen: But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. James five, eleven: Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Number four grace. So in our society, in our culture, we tend to think of this word. Now, in our circles, in, in people who love and trust in Christ, we think and talk about grace a lot. But in the wider, broader culture, grace is just an attribute that gets attributed to somebody who's nice. If you're nice, if you're kind, uh, if you're kind of stoic in the face of something difficult, right? So somebody goes to a party, hang out with their friends, and they've got their three-year-old with them, and everybody's hanging out and chatting and having a good time, and the three-year-old knocks over a giant potted plant. And now there's a plant and potting soil all over the carpet. And the hostess comes in from the kitchen, and she says, don't even worry about that. No worries. We'll fix it. We'll clean it up. It's, nope, don't even worry about it. Come on over here and sit down. It'll be totally fine. We would say that she is gracious. That's a gracious hostess because she was so kind in the face of a difficult situation. So kindness, uh, this idea of being stoic or generous in the, in the moment of difficulty, we would say is gracious. If I'm supposed to meet somebody for coffee and I'm 15 minutes late, I didn't call them and I didn't text them, I just show up late. And I walk in and they don't say, man, Carl, what's up, man? I've been here 15 minutes, what's your problem? But instead they say, man, it's good to see you, Carl. And I sit down, and we have coffee, and we have a great afternoon. And he says nothing about how late I was. We would say, he's gracious. He's kind, right? He's being kind to me, uh, even though maybe what I deserve is something a little harsher. Maybe I need to be rebuked for not being a man of my word, right? So grace is God's goodness to those who only deserve punishment. And so again, God's grace is so much bigger and greater and infinite and significant and holy, H-O-L-Y, okay? 
So we often use this word and we'll define it as unmerited favor, which is a good definition. So the idea is that all deserve punishment, but God in his mercy and his grace chooses to rescue some from his wrath. And we want to experience this. We enjoy the truth of this if we understand it. And we want others to know of this grace. And so for just a second, I'm gonna step over here onto my soapbox and I wanna talk to parents for just a second because grace is something I see parents wanting to teach their kids all the time. And I think one of the ways that sometimes we'll choose to teach it is an unhelpful way. And so I wanna talk about it. So what some of us will do is we will not give our kids consequences for their disobedience so that they can see grace. Because that's what God does for us, right? We're supposed to get in trouble, I'm supposed to have consequences for my sin, but God takes them away, gives them to Jesus, and I'm all set. And so I wanna teach my kids that. But here's the tricky thing, is that that's not what we're doing when we do that with our kids. What we're doing is we're taking away the earthly consequences for their sin. That kind of grace can only be given by God. That kind of grace can only be experienced through Christ. For us to teach our kids about it, we'll need to talk about it, explain it. But for us to to just take away their consequences is not something God does. If I were to murder someone, Zach, for instance, not terribly likely. He is super fast. <laughs> but if I were to murder someone, and if I acknowledge my sin and repent and turn and confess to the Lord and confess to others, and I'm faithful to walk through that genuine repentance process, I will be forgiven for that sin. And I will still be a member of God's kingdom. I will still be at the wedding supper of the Lamb at the end of days. It'll be awesome. What I will not be free from is the earthly consequences for my sin. I will still get arrested. I will still go to jail. I will still go on trial. I will still be found guilty. And I'll probably spend the rest of my life in prison or maybe even suffer the death penalty. Those things will not be taken away from me. Earthly consequences for sin remain. Eternal consequences is what God removes. And so for us to teach our kids about grace, we've got to teach them correctly. And so I want us to be cautious that we don't want to use that method to teach kids about grace because what it does is it teaches them, hey, every once in a while you get a freebie. And that's not grace. That's confusion about what authority looks like. So leaving the soapbox over there, coming back over here. Now, when we talk about this idea of grace, there's an immense more that could be said about it but we do have to keep moving. And so I'm just gonna talk about how this is communicable to us. We can indeed show goodness to those who deserve punishment. But again, our ability to demonstrate these attributes is far less than God's. God's grace is abundant and amazing and glorious. Whatever grace we can give is finite and limited and not as great. A few scriptures on this. Ephesians chapter two, verses five through nine This is some of my favorite text in the scriptures. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Romans 3, verses 21 through 25, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Number five, patience. So we think of patience along the same lines as what we think of as wisdom oftentimes. We'll oftentimes think of someone who's patient as somebody who's older, someone who is a little bit more seasoned, someone who's lived a little bit more life, right? We expect impatience from the youth. Young people are impatient. Older people are more patient. And we think of patience as just being willing to wait without freaking out, right? I'm patient if I sit in the car and wait 10 more minutes for my family to get ready to go somewhere because I'm ready and they're not ready. That's patient for me, right? We can be patient with our kids, When your child says mommy for the 973rd time in 90 seconds and you don't freak out, that's patience, right? We would say patience is simply waiting around and not losing your temper and hanging hanging in there, holding it together. But patience is God's goodness in withholding punishment toward those who sin over time. So God's patience, when we talk about his patience, we're talking about him relenting and withholding wrath that is due to us from him that is deserved. He's holding that back. He's being patient. He's being long-suffering. He's being slow to anger. That's a good thing. And it is so much bigger and better than me not freaking out of my kid for saying, you know, mommy, 973 times. This idea of God's patience is that he is graciously waiting and providing opportunity for many to hear the gospel, to be brought to new life, to be saved, to be rescued. Now, we all deserve God's wrath, and God will indeed withhold it from those that he's chosen to be his. The elect are going to experience this withholding of wrath for eternity because he has poured it out on Christ instead of us, and so we will never have to experience that wrath, and he's patient to withhold it from all people for a time in order that many might come to faith, that many might be born again and repent and be saved. So this idea, this attribute is communicable to us because we are indeed able to be patient with others, but it's a patience that's not rooted in a perfect love like God's. God's patience is rooted in his perfect love for his creation. He loves us, and he desires that we would come to repentance, that we would come to faith, and so he's patient. A few verses here, Exodus 34, verse six. Then the Lord passed by in front of him, And proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Acts 13, verses 17 and 18. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. Number six, justice. We think of this term in legal terms, uh, as we should. It is a legal term that it's dealing with legal issues. Uh, We think of it as someone, usually a criminal, who kind of gets what they deserve, right? Some guy does a crime, he gets caught, he goes to jail, he goes on trial, he's found guilty, now he's serving time. 
we say justice was done. Way to go, justice. Nailed it. Right? But justice is more than just getting what you deserve. Justice is doing what is right. Justice is what ought to be. Justice is what ought to happen. And so then the question is then, what is right? What is best? What ought to happen? And the answer is, whatever conforms to God's moral character. Why is that the thing that's right and good and best and just? Because it conforms to God's moral character. So again, same thing with truth. There is no external source or measuring stick by which we can say this is just or this is unjust. God is the measuring stick. God decides what is just. He is just. The scriptures say his name is justice. And so the idea here is that whatever conforms to God's character is just, is right, is what ought to happen. And so righteousness, right standing, comes along with justice here. Justice and righteousness are connected together. These two words have a kind of a more nuanced and individual meaning in English, but in Hebrew and Greek, they're kind of lumped together when speaking about God. God's righteousness and justice means that God always acts in accordance with what is right. And he is himself that final standard of what is right. So he always does what's best. God is always right. He is always just. He is always righteous. He is perfect in all of his ways. And so this attribute of justice is communicable to us because we do have this innate desire for justice to be done. Right? If somebody does us wrong, I want them to get justice. If somebody commits a crime, I want them to get justice. But, but mostly for everybody else, not for me. I don't want justice for me. I want justice for everybody else. I want mercy for me, but I want everybody else to get justice. This is the posture of the human heart. And so for us to think about justice, we'll never be able to consider it, think about it, walk in it in the same degree that God does. So our justice always falls short of God's standards. Our court systems are sometimes going to fail. And even when they get it right, it's still not the same justice that God gives. God's justice has still not been done. When God judges someone at the final judgment, that is when justice will be, have been done. So even if we get it right, we catch the murderer, we put him in jail, he lives, he lives out the rest of his days in prison, that's the best version of justice we're gonna get in this world. But God's justice is better. A few verses here. Hebrews 10, verse 30. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Isaiah 30, verse 18, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Isaiah 61, verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Number seven, we're getting close, you guys. We're getting close. We think of jealousy. This is the one I think that is the most far away in our thinking from the way things really are. So we think of jealousy typically as envy. We think of it as wanting something somebody else has. You got it, I want it, I'm jealous. You got the fancy new Lexus. No, sir, I want that Lexus. Man, that's not right. You don't deserve that Lexus. You haven't worked as hard as me. I deserve that Lexus. Whatever. It's wanting something that someone else has, which the scriptures would call covetousness or envy. But we label it as jealousy, and we say jealousy is the same thing. Being jealous is wanting what other people have. But there's another side to jealousy. It's a righteous side. 
And it's a desire to keep and protect something that already rightly belongs to you. And this is the kind of jealousy that our God has. Our God is jealous for his people. He wants his people to come to him. God is jealous for his glory. And he's right to be jealous for it. All glory and honor and praise are due to him. They belong to him. For him to want them and desire them and to be jealous for them is not evil. It is not sinful the way that we tend to think of jealousy. God's jealousy is wanting what is due to him, what belongs to him. So it's not a prideful thing like us. If we wanted glory and honor and power and praise and worship, if we wanted those things and chased after them and were jealous for them, it would be sinful. Those things don't belong to us. They belong to God. But for God to want them is not jealousy. It is righteous and good for him to be jealous, for his own name to be exalted. But it is not right and good for us to want our name to be exalted. So, this can still play out and be communicable to us in that we can also be jealous for God's glory to be made known. We can be jealous for God's name to be spoken of with reverence. We can be jealous for God to get the praise and the glory and the honor. I can be jealous for my wife. I see a man looking at her in some lustful kind of way. It's not wrong for me to be jealous for her protection and safety and step in and be like, what's up, bro? Do we need to talk and stuff? Maybe give you the old one, too? No? The one, two? Okay. So, <laughs> I thought it was funny. I appreciate you all, though. Uh, I can be jealous for my kids, right? I can be uh, with little kids at a playground and see some weird creeper walking in the background and be like, everybody in the van, we're out of here, right? I can be jealous for them and for their safety because I'm not sure what's going on back there behind the playground. That jealousy is not a bad or wicked thing. It's a righteous and good thing. But I can also be sinful in my jealousy. I can covet and want and envy the Lexus or the big giant house or the big giant wad of money. I can want those things in a sinful way, but I can also be jealous for things that are righteous. And this is the kind of jealousy God has. A few verses here, Exodus 34, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6, 15. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God would be kindled against you, and he'd wipe you off the face of the earth. Psalm 78, 58. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. 1 Corinthians 10, 21 and 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Number eight, last one, this is it. And we're gonna bring uh, Zachary up here and do a little Q&A. Number eight, wrath. Ooh, I said that cool. I don't know if I can get my voice to do that again. Wrath, uh, the word here is associated, when we think of wrath, uh, we often think of kind of just this outpouring of vengeance and anger uh, that's fearsome, can't be stopped, uh, oftentimes gets associated with like uh, uh, the bad people in Disney movies, right? the end of Little Mermaid, you got the crazy octopus lady, and she's, nyah, 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 and she's stirring the, I don't know if you've seen The Little Mermaid, but just, I'm not doing that again. That's a one-time deal. Man, man, the reaction I got for that was amazing. Uh, but there's this idea that there's this kind of, uh, this outpouring of anger, right, and vengeance uh, upon uh, people who do or don't deserve it, right? 
Um, but this woman was stuck down at the bottom of the sea for years and years and was building up a lot of anger toward people and she finally got to, we're just moving on past Little Mermaid, you guys. <laughs> we're just moving on. Um, so uh, I think, uh, another movie reference, I think of The Wrath of Khan when I think of The Wrath. Man, what a great movie. Again, don't bother watching it. It's not that great. But here's what's fun. The bad guy in that movie is Ricardo Montalban, who is also known for his incredible portrayal of a man who owned an island called Fantasy Island. Oh, man. Nobody knows what that is. Here we go. We're just going to finish this up. Thank you. Thank you. The plane, boss. The plane. Well done. So proud of you right now. Um, Okay, back on track. So, uh, these characterizations are fairly accurate. This is an outpouring of wrath and anger against sin that God has for sinners and their sin. This is an outpouring of God's righteous anger, right? So, the little mermaid, uh, bad, bad person at the end of the movie, it's not a righteous anger. She just didn't get her way, didn't like the way things were going. God's anger, God's wrath is righteous, He is right to hate sin, and he is right to have wrath against it. He's right to pour out that wrath upon sin and upon sinners. And it cannot be stopped except by himself. He is withholding that wrath in his patience, in his mercy, by his grace. So this attribute can be communicable to us because we can, too, have a righteous anger against sin, against our own sin, and we should. We should have wrath against our sin. We might desire to kill it and put it to death because that's what God wants from us. But that's often not where our wrath is pointed. Often our wrath is pointed at other people who get in our way, who don't conform to our image, who don't acknowledge that we sit on the throne and we are the ruler of our universe. That's where our wrath usually gets pointed. Our wrath, if righteously handled, if we're going to walk in that attribute correctly, should be pointed at our own sin. Otherwise, it's a sinful thing for us. So a few verses here, Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Ezekiel 25, 17, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Romans 2, verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Proverbs eight thirteen: the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. Okay, super fast review, and then we're gonna bring Zachary on up here. Wisdom, wisdom is deciding on the best and right outcome as well as the best and right means to that outcome. We can exercise wisdom, but God's is a holy and perfect wisdom. Truthfulness, this is speaking and doing only what is true. God is the standard of truth, and so everything that he says and does is true. Mercy is God's goodness to those who are in misery and distress. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. Patience is God's goodness in withholding punishment to sinners over time. God's justice is doing is his doing what is right, which is what is in line with his moral character. God is just. 
His justice is a holy justice. Jealousy is God's holy and righteous protecting of his own honor, of wanting what is rightly his, which is worship, glory, honor, praise. And wrath, God's holy anger poured out against sin. It is rightly poured out for every single sin in history, either on the sinner or on Christ. Christ. 